Welcome to Santa Barbara Talks with Josh Molina. It's my pleasure today to be here with Elise Simmons, principal of Santa Barbara High School. She's got a fantastic reputation. If you've talked to anybody in the Santa Barbara Unified District Cabinet or other principals or administrators, you know, they speak really highly of her. And I wanted to just have a conversation about a lot of stuff related to education. Uh, obviously, it's a really interesting time right now. It's a, it's a tough time. It's a challenging time with the COVID-19 pandemic. Uh, we might be sort of turning the corner a little bit. And that's what I want to talk to uh, Elise Simmons about pri primarily. Welcome to the show, Elise. How are you today? Thank you, Josh. I'm doing great. And I'm really glad to be here. And it's always nice to hear nice things about yourself. It also makes me always uncomfortable. But <laughs> thank you for sharing that. <laughs> yeah, no, you have a really good reputation. I told a few people I'd be talking to you for this. And they were very excited and said, Oh, she's amazing. She's great. So um, I just wanted to dive in and talk to you. Obviously, there's been a lot of news lately with the COVID-19 pandemic related to elementary schools. There was a board meeting recently, and there's been just sort of this gradual shift in mindset of we need to reopen elementary schools. Um, we know the cases are high. Uh, they're not as bad as they were, uh, you know, January. Uh, this is sort of going to keep going up and down. We have a vaccination, but let's do what we can to open schools and uh, let's uh, just try it and see, see, how, see how it works. Because looking nationally, it doesn't look like uh, there's a lot of uh, outbreaks in elementary schools for the places that have opened. There are some cases, of course, where we're seeing where it's not entirely 100%. But I wanted to sort of talk to you about our secondary schools, uh, junior high and high school. You're the principal of Santa Barbara High. Uh, what's, what's on the horizon for, for high school and Santa Barbara High? And when are we going to start that conversation of when those students are going to come back? Well, <laughs> there are students back, you know, so yeah. that's one of the things. Santa Barbara High um, is the largest uh, school in our district. It has... Um, we have about, we have 17% of the students in our entire district. They attend Santa Barbara High. Um, and so on any given day right now, we have um, all of our student athletes are back. 27 of our sports are all conditioning. Um, there's one sport getting ready to compete, our cross country team. Um, so we have about six to 700 athletes throughout the week training. Um, we also have small cohorts um, for our students that are struggling academically, our students that need extra support, um, like our moderate peer uh, students with disabilities, our emerging multilingual students. We have um, performing arts on campus. Our theater um, is getting ready for a production, fingers crossed, um, that it's going to happen. And then our, also our dance team. So we have, on any given day, hundreds and hundreds of students on campus. And with those students come adults. And so um, it's a pretty active place already um, that doesn't take away from the students that are, that are at home and zooming in for their learning. Um, I, in terms of shifting to hybrid learning, I think that's the question of when will, when will we shift to that? And what that means is about a third to half of our students would be on campus throughout the entire day um, to, for classes as well as the rest of the students would remain at home and they would zoom in. That conversation um, is just, it's sort of always there. We are talking about it all the time. Um, there's a lot of different moves that need to be made to ensure the safety of our students and staff when that decision is made. 
I think as we're starting to trend, um, it's trending in the right direction. Um, and secondary schools can open when we're in the red tier, which means seven cases out of 100,000. So we're still pretty far from that. Um, but we're also noticing some shifting in conversations around, does that have to be the, the number still? Or can secondary schools open up in, I like to say the light purple tier, which is, which is, you know, down in, in the, in the teens or something. So um, I haven't heard much more about that. I, I bet we will in the next couple of weeks, especially as the elementary schools start to open, it always then sort of looks at now secondary, it's your turn. And that gets the, the wheels spinning. Yeah. I think at the political level, the political and state level, we're just, we're still following the county guidance right now. So yeah, and you raise a good point. I asked that question. I take my son to school three to four days a week for sports practice. You know, to fill out the, the, the form in the morning, the crisis go, and uh, you say he doesn't have a fever above 100.4 and he hasn't come in contact or, or yeah, you know, there's a couple questions there that I go through. And uh, yeah, you're right. There's, there is a lot of uh, activity on the campus uh, for sure. My son goes to DP, so it's different experience. Do you think that that secondary schools are going to be able to start this semester, or do you think that we're just going to wait till August? What's your thought on that? Well, my hope, uh -huh. I, I found myself using that word a lot. Um, my hope has always been we will return to in-person instruction sometime this school year. Yeah. And so when I think about that, I am, I, I want to be always positive, but always realistic and always take into account the safety. And um, I'm really relieved when I see the numbers trending in the right direction. Yeah. And um, although I do get uh, concerned, I am worried about the impact that Super Bowl Sunday had and the mm. gatherings that people we're part of. Um, I am worried about spring break coming. Um, oh, yeah. But I do remain forever hopeful that we will open. And I keep looking to term four as sort of my in my brain, yeah. a, a great, a great chance. It's the changing of a term, which means for some of our students, new classes, for a lot of the teachers and students, they sort of go, okay, now we're gonna we, we're halfway through, we're gonna, sh it's like, a, it's a grading period. So that's my hope that the data, the science matches up with our grading calendar <laughs> right? and that we can return um, because I just, I miss the kids. We miss the kids so much. And we all know that in-person learning is the most effective learning, not only for academics, but mental health. And so um, that's my hope that we return this year. So let's let's go right there and sort of talk about the impacts of most of the kids not being able to attend school in person. We hear a lot about elementary. We know that it's very tough for for children to be able to spend so much time on Zoom, working parents, stories of parents leaving their kids at home and maybe a neighbor will check or an older sibling or they'll come home and check in when they can. Um, and those are the formative years for, for, for kids, you know, kindergarten through sixth grade, they're, they're developing their study habits. And so let's talk about high school and 
what what kind of what's similar what's different uh what are you seeing in terms of the biggest impacts of students having to zoom uh five days a week i think it's on the connections and the relationships i think um that that has been the hardest through all of this and anybody who knows me knows that i am a huge relational person that i'm all about relationships um and you know, you hear the word social emotional learning. That's all about relationships. That's acknowledging those connections we have with people. Um, and with Zoom, it's it's not you. It's very it's very very hard <laughs> to develop those. It takes a lot longer. And so I think first and foremost, that's like the biggest impact is the is the the la there are relationships don't get me wrong I, i'm watching teachers and students be creative and continue to figure out ways to connect and i i hear from teachers all the time about the wonderful connections through chatting through the right through journaling and writing through one-on-one -on -one conversations but it's a lot of it's the students with students they're struggling with finding those friends i can't imagine an incoming ninth grader, you know, they don't even know where their classes are at, number one, on, no. on campus, right? They've never been to school at, at San Barbara High. And then also just the friend groups, trying to find a friend. I don't know how you make friends through Zoom when you're in class and you're focusing on learning. So I, that is a big um, area that, that's a big impact. Um, and I, I, that cuts across, I think, every single sector in our society where you have to do your work through Zooming. I think people are struggling across the board in that. Um, and the other thing, I mean, the, the learning, the learning is different. It is not what it, you know, there's the hands-on learning teachers are doing what they can to give hands-on experience at home, giving uh, art kits, science kits, um, sports medicine. I was handing out the big bags of like um, tape when we did textbook return. So we're doing what we can to give students the hands-on experience as at home, um, but that is all missing. Um, I've sat in a class where we, they were doing a Socratic seminar, which is a, you know, a discussion. Mm -hmm. It's very different on Zoom. You can do it, right. and, and it's, the depth of thinking is still there. It's just, it's just not as um, interactive, because really only one person can talk at a time, and if you've ever been in a Socratic seminar, it's sort of one person and then someone kind of jumps in and it becomes this nice flow and that it's zoom sort of makes it more awkward. Maybe it's a better way of saying it. Right. Um, what I have noticed is that, you know, we talk a lot about wanting students to be advocates for themselves, self-agency, right. independent learners. Mm -hmm. um, and so this has really forced that the hand of that. Um, and so supporting teachers and students in what are those skills needed so that a student can do this work independently if they need to. We're, we're noticing that um, a lot of students are, um, they are now the responsible caregivers at home for their younger siblings. Um, they are going, having to go to work to support the family and economic hardships. Um, so students are having to, this gives them that ability to, to also learn when they can learn versus during the eight to three, or excuse me, nine to three bell schedule. But that is also really hard. I can't imagine being a 15 year old, carrying a job, um, 
that for rent for family, not just because you want spending money to buy those next cool shoes, um, taking care of younger siblings and having and doing school at the same time. So we're, you know, that's been that's been hard on our on our students. Uh, large of our many of our students are are struggling and families are struggling in that way. Um, I think the other piece of it is that when you're in person, you can, the evidence of learning or the mental health of, of whoever you're in front of, it's, it's easier to assess. Um, and so I think that's another, that goes back to that connection piece. And that goes back to um, what, you know, this like through Zoom and not every student turns on their camera. That has been an, uh, has been an interesting, uh, Sometimes I have to negotiate with students on, on and as I sit with them in different settings, I have a group of, uh, it's called the Student UN. Okay. And so just negotiating with them of when the camera should be on and when it should be off. But being able to see students work is hard because often it's like, do you hold up your paper? Do you, is it a Google doc? So teachers are getting really creative with that. Okay. And then being able to see the student physically and, and uh, to get to see how they're doing with their mental health um, has been hard yeah. because when, so there, I, mean, I think the, this whole thing has deeply impacted the way we do school. Um, but at the end of the day, it sort of highlights what I've always felt is the number one thing, which is the need for relationships and connections. And so we do whatever we can to make sure that those still are happening mm -hmm. and and the students are learning, but first and foremost, it's the relationship piece. And then let's do some math now, you know, so. Yeah, there, in person, there's so much peer pressure that comes with traditional in-person school. And then you take, and that's part of a, a young person's growth and development. And, and it helps other people too, to sort of learn how to interact with, with people who are different than you. And then you turn that in the virtual setting, but it, it's still there, you know, it's like Zoom backgrounds, you know, it's like, what's my Zoom background gonna be? And my Zoom background, does it look as good as somebody else's Zoom background? And so it's, it's, it's everything that people experience through in-person school, now trying to figure that out through virtual learning is, is definitely difficult. And I know what you mean about the screens, um, you know, you, you've probably seen maybe like a forehead or something with some students or like partial, and they're trying to make a statement through their Zoom and, you know, what they look like. And all that stuff is normal stuff that kids would be doing in, you know, in high school, figuring themselves out. And so it's it's just, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's interesting. At the same time, they're more going to be way more computer savvy than oh, yeah. classes before them. You know, they, they, they're going to be able to go in the workplace and know how to have these kind of meetings, you know? So oh, absolutely. And how to use Google docs and hyperlinks and collaborate, you know, on them. And the other thing that I've noticed is um, in, in a lot of the students, it's like the, their ability to be creative, to figure out ways to still, connect with each other or with the school or in our community. Um, I, I, um, we have a new, AS, uh, new ASB teacher director. Her name is Kelly Ball. And one of the things that I said to her, I said, listen, I really we want to start shifting the culture around connections and communications with our students and, and having students feel like they're connected to school. And um, 
if you've ever seen the California Healthy Kids Survey data, which here's a plug, please parents, please fill out the survey. We all need it at all the schools. Um, and, have, and ninth and 11th graders are filling it out as well. But school connectedness, students at the high school level report such low levels of connectedness. And what it, what it really looks like is, do you feel like you are doing things that are giving back to the community or making the community better? Do you feel like you have voice and choice in, in your classroom, whether it's around assignments or rules? And uh, do you feel like, you know, you just, you're, the school cares about your voice and your opinion and you have agency within that. And so um, one of the best ways in my mind has been clubs. Clubs allow students to step into leadership roles. They can identify a passion, whether it's a service learning club or just a club that's educational, they have like interests. Um, and so at Kelly Ball, I said, hey, how are you gonna do this club thing? Cause that's what she's, and she's like, I don't know. But out of this, we have now um, 25 active clubs. They're all virtual. They have a virtual website. And then we just did a second club rush and 24 more students showed up to say, I have an idea for a new club. That's unheard of. In, nor in normal times, we're probably activating, we probably have about 25 clubs. We're now doubling it. So that speaks, when I heard that number, I was just like, that tells us that they want to be connected. They want to find ways to explore um, just their passions and find like groups. And a lot of them are groups that they want to give back. So a tutoring club started, peer tutoring club. Um, and so it's just, you start to see from all of this, 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 this relentlessness from our students to connect, be creative, find ways to impact the community. Um, it's, it's pretty awesome to watch. Um, and it sort of, I tell people will say, well, you know, aren't the teenagers, don't teenagers, they just don't really care. They only care about themselves. Mm -hmm. And I'm like, no way. That is the exact opposite. If you've been around um, teenagers in the last four years, you're going to see that they're, they're very empathetic. I mean, they are, they, because of social media and what they're seeing on the TV and the, they're way more grounded in what is going on around them. They care about our environment. They care about our community. They care about Black Lives Matter and, and they care about justice. And it's, it's amazing to watch. Um, and so they, it's still there, even though they're zooming in, they're still yeah. pretty awesome. Yeah. I, I find that, that young, younger people are a lot nicer than, than like my generation of that time. I mean, it's, it's really remarkable. Yeah. Um, and they're, they're, it's just like, even like customer service or something like that, you know, so somebody, my generation, you know, it's sort of like, you're more likely to get grumpy or something if something doesn't work out. But like that generation, they're so nice and they're friendly. Like you, you know, they're very, they tip, they want to tip and they're polite. It's like a whole different respect that they have that's natural, that's not forced, that's being built in mm -hmm. and, as they develop. And that's, I think, a really cool thing about how we're changing over time. You know, we can't sort of change attitudes overnight. They come through generational change. And I think, like you mentioned, equity and justice and tolerance, we're seeing these changes live right in front of our eyes. And, you know, by the time they're our age, hopefully it's an entirely different world, you know, than what we may experience in 2020. Let me ask you about the achievement gap. Um, are you seeing um, the distance learning expand the gap between um, 
you know, students who are uh, traditionally do well and students who struggle a little bit more with the standardized tests. Uh, are you seeing that issue getting worse because of COVID-19? Um, and what's, what is the school sort of trying to do to, to address that if, if that's the case? Yeah, I'm trying to decide how I would describe if it's worse or if it's just, it's the same. Mm -hmm. I think what's worse is um, in talking with teachers is in um, in-person instruction, because the students are there, you can see that evidence of learning. You can see the work that they're doing. Um, and, and as they're leaving, you're like, hey, give me that assignment, right? As they walk out the door. In, in virtual learning, kids are there in the Zoom meeting and the teacher's like, hey, sub, you know, hit submit on your Google Doc or turn that through Google Classroom and they don't. So then it's like, well, how do I like, and then it's a conversation of what, is it a technology thing? Like, why aren't you submitting the assignment? And um, I also think about a lot when I was a teacher, I taught at junior high. And so I remember like I would, kids would not turn anything in. And I'd be like, you come in and we literally would go through the student's backpack and we would find all this work, all this evidence of learning. Yeah. And you can't, you can't do that. You can't go through a kid's backpack right now. Right. Um, and so and find this, these things of like, oh, see, you do get that. You do understand that information, that skill. And so what teachers are noticing is that, um, you know, students that are, there's a lot of like zeros to 14%. And that lack of data doesn't say that they're not learning. It's just, we don't have the evidence to say that they're learning. And so that's the struggle. So I don't, can't say if it's worse or not. It's more of just, it's like different. Um, and it's hard on teachers because they're they're like I I know they're there and when I so it's like when I talk to them, they I I'm like yeah okay you do understand it and then they can they can put in like a grade or some sort of just they feel like yeah you are learning you're just not turning in the work, yeah. um, and so that's the other really cool thing that has happened in all of this is a focus on um, how do we assess learning and versus like just. It's the word I'm looking for, just turning things in or like effort. There is effort in there, but I want to hear through the effort that you're learning. So I, I think that's what's really different is the students, it's like the zero percenters. There's a lot of students have zero to 15%. And so what we're doing about that is, you know, teachers, they do everything they can to connect with that kid in that classroom. They have them stay after, they do a breakout room with the student, they have office hours they reach out to the counselor, they reach out to the parents. Um, you know, we have an amazing bilingual uh, language access team at Santa Barbara High um, that will support our teachers in, in all, in any sort of communication they, they would need to have with, with, with families that uh, speak Spanish. Um, and so then, for, then last case, we do home visits. Mm -hmm. Mr. Mendoza is our Dean of Student Engagement. Maria Jimenez is our, um, family student uh, outreach liaison. And to the two of them this year have done more than 180 home visits. Um, and so just they show up at the door and say, what's going on? And, and uh, because of COVID, you have to be practicing safety procedures around that, but that we do that. We're also working on um, increasing the number of home visits. So we're creating teams of counselors and admin that mm -hmm. will go out and, um, really target the students that on the, by the, according to their grades and our teachers that they're having a hard time engaging. So we're going to, we're starting that um, next week and beyond because we realized 
180, we have 2,200 kids, 180, we need to do some more, some more outreach. Right. So that's such an they're not coming to us, we're gonna to go to them. Yeah, that's, yeah. that's awesome. And that's such an interesting concept of grading effort because when we talk about how people learn differently, some people, it's just easier for them to finish. It's easier for them to cross the finish line. It doesn't mean those who don't haven't done everything they possibly could to put the work in, but there's different kinds of roadblocks people face depending on what challenges they have in their own experiences, their own surroundings. And so the idea of grading effort is, is really cool because there's a lot of people, a lot of students who work really hard. It may not show in the final product, you know, of the grade, but it doesn't mean they're not learning. You know, it, it, you know, we've all, I, it may be a myth. Um, it may be true, but you know, you sort of, we've heard, uh, uh, you know, the C students, you know, end up being a little bit more successful than the A students because the C students, you know, in college, they, they may get a C, but they remember, they remember more of it. The A students, some of them tend to cram, you know, it's like regurgitate. They know how to get that on the test. And so, you know, there's, there's all kinds of different ways to measure what people know and what they've learned and their success beyond just the final grade. So that's a, that's a good conversation. I know that's happening nationally in terms of how do you reimagine sort of that grading system. I want to uh, transition a little bit to you and your backstory in a second, but, um, you know, you mentioned with the home visits, some of the, uh, you know, the health and, uh, you know, safety issues that, that uh, people have to make. Uh, what has COVID-19 been like in terms of the cases on campus? Uh, we do have, obviously, as you said, a lot of activity on campus. And so um, have you seen any sort of um, any, any cases on campus or spread? Or I know the district has talked a little bit about that. But uh, in terms of COVID-19 cases, what's it been like at Santa Barbara High with the cohorts you have back? Well, um, you've seen the data. It's not mm -hmm. a bragging point, but we are number one in yeah. the number of positive cases on campus. Yeah. We've had um, 21 since September. So since September to now, we've had 21 positive cases on campus. Yeah. Um, what that means though, just so it's it's a little bit clear too, it means that um, some, I'll, I'll give you an, okay, well, it's, it's students and staff to be clear. Um, and what it is though, I'll give you an example of one. We have a young person in a small cohort um, and hasn't attended the small cohort. The last time the student attended the small cohort was, it's gonna give you a date, January 25th, for example. Well, we find out on, uh, and mom has kept the young man home, for example, and, and it's like, because he doesn't feel well. Well, we find out on February 2nd that the young man tested positive. So that is considered still a positive case on campus, even though he's never been on campus while he was positive or symptomatic, yeah. it still counts as a positive case because he's part of the small cohort. So that's an example. The other, another example is a student comes and they're asymptomatic or a staff member comes and they're asymptomatic and we and they come to work, they go to school. And we find out later that they were positive and then we do contact tracing. So it's a wide range of what it means to have 21 positive cases on campus. Um, the, the data point that I love to say is we've had zero transmissions, mm -hmm. which means that someone comes onto campus at some point, they're positive, 
they have, we do contact tracing. Those, those folks that have had close contact, they quarantine. This person's isolated. And, but there is no transmission. Yeah. So yes, you've had a close contact with this person and yes, you're quarantined, but they do not then, they don't have COVID yeah. as a result of that close contact with that person. So yes, we've had 21 cases, but zero transmissions. And that's really important to me because that speaks to um, the protocols we have in place and the safety measures we have in place here. So close contact is also defined by um, being within six feet of someone for 15 minutes within the, like that day. So a total of like 15 minutes. And so, you know, that, that can happen. Imagine, it doesn't matter if you have a mask on or not, or you're indoors or not, it's, I mean, it doesn't matter, trust me. But when it comes to defining close contact, it's six feet, within six feet for a total of 15 minutes or more throughout that day. So um, that means everyone's always has a mask on. Hand hygiene is huge. We have, a, we're making sure all of our classrooms and spaces are ventilation. If I'm having a conversation with someone for an extended period of time, you'll see me walking outside with that person. Um, so I get my steps in, but it's also the safest thing to do. Um, and so I just, in the same, so that's a really important, um, and it's been hard. It, you know, when I get a positive case, it's, it is, it, not only do you have a lot of things you need to do working with a nurse and that there's a COVID task force at the district, amazing support you. I never feel alone in any of this. I work as a team. Um, it's, so it's a lot of work, but it also, at the end of the day, I, I get worried because I want to first and foremost, like, are you okay? How is the, how is your, how are you? Um, and we've been um, lucky in the sense that most of the positive cases, the grand majority of them have been very mild. Um, we've had a couple that, that are not, but they're healing. And so, um, yeah, that's, it's, it's a lot of safety protocols and a lot of vigilance and a lot of um, communication and just working together. So, yeah. Well, you know, that, that's, that's a really good explanation because you see the numbers, you're like, whoa, 21. <laughs> and then you understand that it's a little more nuanced than that. And it isn't as though somebody came to campus and then spread it to another student who spread yeah. it to another student. And all of a sudden you have 21 students or teachers with it. It's not that at all, actually, you know, so that's really helpful. Uh, let's talk a little bit about you um, and, and your background. Uh, you know, you mentioned the importance of um, relationships and how strongly you believe in that as an, as an educator. And in the times I've interacted with you, I do feel that you attempt to make a strong connection. And um, I can imagine that that is how you taught and, you know, how you are as an administrator. So can, can you help me understand sort of a little bit about your upbringing and, you know, how you sort of got involved in education and sort of what some of your experiences were that brought you to where you're at today? This podcast is sponsored by Radius Commercial Real Estate. For over 40 years, Steve Golis at Radius Commercial Real Estate has served the South Coast and Tri-County markets as the undisputed leader in multifamily investment sales, amassing more than $1 billion and 13,000 units sold over the last decade alone. With acumen for market analysis and connecting investors with the right properties, Steve is the go-to among local investors looking to capitalize in this unique real estate category. 
For unrivaled results in the sale or purchase of your residential income assets, contact Steve Golis at Radius Commercial Real Estate at www.radiusgroup.com or 805-965-5500. So, if, so let me begin with the beginning. Um, I was born in North County, San Diego, and my mom and dad... Um, lived in uh they lived on an avocado ranch in a, in a trailer they had just they would you grow up in fallbrook no, no and outside valley center near fallbrook oh, okay All right. yeah i was born in escondido at palomar hospital um burn on Jan- 1203 midnight january 1st I'm the first baby born in california in 1976 how cool. a little tidbit yeah now you know how old i am um and a bicentennial baby so we live my mom and dad lived in a, in a trailer on an avocado ranch that eventually they built a small home there. Um, and I have a little brother. He's, he's 22 months younger than me. And we were there for about five years. And then my parents um, realized that they needed to not live together anymore. They just, it just didn't work out. And so um, I remember it very clearly when my parents, um, when the decision was made and I was one of the students, one of those children that I was relieved. And so, because there was just a lot of fighting and it was just better apart. So we, my mom, um, after some fits and starts trying to find a place to live, we ended up, she ended up taking us to her home where she grew up, um, at least close to it. She, we, we, she grew up in Pasadena. She attended Mira high school. And so we ended up going back to South Pasadena where we ended up finding a rental and um, that's where I spent about, that's where I spent kindergarten through high school is in South Pasadena. Mm. And it's a wonderful place to have grown up. Um, I, it's, it's, those of you who know it, it's a small city. It's, it's I think it's a 10 by 10 city. Um, it's south of Pasadena. It's right off the 110 freeway. Um, a lot of it is historical. Um, they've been trying to build the 710 freeway through it, but they want, they can't because of this, all the different obstacles in the way. Um, it's a beautiful little town. They make a lot of movies there. And it's so, cause it's close to Hollywood. It's like a six minute drive to Los Angeles, um, maybe 12 minutes or so. But um, so it's just a great place to live. We lived in a, in a neighborhood where there was, um, I had like a whole crew of kids. There was 25, 30 kids within my age group in this one neighborhood, we would close the street down to play kickball. And, and I come from a family of educators, actually. Um, my aunt is a, a retired teacher. I have an uncle who is a teacher, um, uncle is a professor. And actually we're, it's a family more of, uh, I would say we give back nurses and educators. That's the, where we come from. And so as a young child, I always thought I'm going to be a teacher. My mom used to tell stories about how she would walk into the room and she'd find my poor brother sitting there as I was his teacher, making him read and write and do things like, I think I was four and he was like two and a half. So she said, I always was that sort of kid. Um, I loved reading and, and I loved elementary school. And I started, I think it was about towards, right about junior high was when I didn't love school so much. So um, I started, and that was also, I got really into soccer. I was a soccer player. Um, okay. and I loved, that was my, my saving grace for everything was soccer. Not only that's where all my best friends were, that's where I could, um, I was strong. I loved it. It just, the team, the team idea, that's where the team mentality comes from. 
Um, and so soccer was really what sort of helped me get through junior high and high school. I also found, um, I loved being in, I was in leadership in junior high. And then in high school, I did yearbook staff. I was in yearbook sports mm -hmm. editor and, and other things. So I found ways to connect to school um, beyond, beyond the academics. I, I did well enough to get into UCSB, but um, I always tell the story that, I don't know if it exists still, but there used to be a comment on the progress report report card that was works below her ability or works below their ability. Oh, yeah. The teachers frequently gave me that comment. And I, part of it was, I just wasn't engaged. And so I always look back at that and go, why did I not, what was it that made me feel like I was bored most of the time. And to be honest, I mean, it wasn't that it wasn't challenging. I just didn't want to meet the challenge of what the teacher was giving us. And so again, so I think I look back at it and I think the lack of relationships were there with me and the teachers. I felt that teachers that were trying to connect with me were they're trying to be my friend versus being like a mentor. And so I just sort of just didn't want to engage in that. Mm. Um, and so I, so for me, when I think about my high school, it, I just think about soccer, yearbook, and and just having fun with friends. Um, so then when I went to college, went to UCSB, and that's, by the way, where my mom and dad actually attended UCSB. That's why I chose it. They oh, went there for a couple of years. Um, I think my dad dropped out. They were there during, they were there in 1969. So my dad was, you know, there when the bank was burning. My mom was there. She was wiping tear gas out of people's eyes. And so my dad, he just sort of like, I don't want to do this anymore. He ended up dropping out. And then my mom stayed for a little bit and then the school just sort of stopped teaching. And so that's where they met each other. Um, and so I was like, I'll go to UCSB. And so I went, that's where I went and I did well. And it, I remember, I will never forget the day I was, this, it was my second year. And I remember I woke up one morning and I was like, I know what I want to do. I want to be a teacher. And it was sort of like, I tapped back into my third grade self again. And I wanted to be a teacher when I was in elementary school. And I, I realized that I sort of came back out as a college student. It was like, I love learning again. Like I just loved everything. I read everything I'd loved. Um, talking in class. I mean, it was just great. I found it again. And then with that, with that finding of love, the love of learning again, I wanted to help others learn. And that's when I wanted to, that's when I realized I wanted to be a teacher again. <laughs> and so I started doing things like, um, I worked at Devereaux for a while. I worked, um, I was a third grade, um, I worked in a third grade classroom as a math tutor, but it ended up just being a tutor for everything or just a helper. Mm -hmm. Um, I did pre-professional work. I did what I needed. I did everything I needed to do to make sure it was the right decision, but also to get into the teacher education program at UCSB. Mm -hmm. So I ended up graduating from UCSB. I am a Bachelor of Arts. Um, my, I have double major in psychology and religious studies, which oh, is a unique, yeah. unique blend. Um, it has served me well in all of my, <laughs> all of it has. It's just really interesting. Um, how it sort of pops up in my life. And so then I ended up getting my teaching credential and my master's from UCSB the following year in history, social science, and then a master's in education. Mm -hmm. And 
I luckily got hired a week before school started at Lacumbra. And oh, mm-hmm. that's where it started my, I sort of, that's where my whole educational career, I grew up my career, I grew up in the in San Bernardino Unified. Okay. Um, I have not worked in any other districts. Um, I, in August, it will be my 22nd year. So. Okay. So it's interesting when you were, you kind of said you lost your love for for uh, learning a little bit uh, somewhere maybe around junior high and you were able to find it later. When you sort of found it again, was part of your motivation or can you talk a little bit about what role did your educational experience have in your desire to teach others? Uh, in other words, did you want to sort of help the, the, the young new Elise Simmons is out of the world who were out there to sort of help them sort of have the advantages or the understanding that you didn't have was, was any of that sort of like playing in your mind of, you know, I, I want to help in ways that I wasn't helped when I was in the school system. Yeah, I, absolutely. The, the other thing that I learned when I was in college was um, I was, a I was really angry as a young child. Um, and so I don't know if any of you have ever heard or if you've heard of the adverse childhood experiences ACE score. Mm. So it's a, it's a questionnaire you can take. Um, there's a lot of research around it. Um, some wonderful, uh, so adverse childhood experiences, it's, it's questions you answer and you don't want to have a high score because the higher the score you have, that means the more adverse childhood experiences that you've had. I have a really high ACE score. So as a child, I didn't realize what was happening. I mean, I did, but it impacted me um, and it, it did influence how I engaged with adults in my life in junior high and high school. Um, it's it, influenced in a, in a negative way. So as a college kid, I started to be able, I started to look back and be able to see how, um, how that impacted me. And so, and also how I allowed it to impact me. That was the other piece of it too, is, you know, this idea of when something happens to you, it's like, well, how are you going to respond to it? Well, a teenager, you know, we, we respond in different ways. And so as an adult Elise or a, or a new, new adult, new, fairly new adult Elise, I was able to look back and, and see how I responded to it and then go, you know, start to respond to things differently. I had to start dealing with what the impacts that I had the um I'm a a survivor survivor of sexual abuse and and so it's as an adult you have to react differently or you're not going to be a functioning adult in society and so I think part of of it was not just the academic part that was not challenging I think I didn't realize how much the my life was impacting, my life outside of school was impacting my life at school. And so that's another reason why, as I think about myself now, and as a young teacher, it was me helping students feel challenged, feel accepted and feel safe and feel, um, and, and talk to them about how they do have control over some of the things in their lives and to help them find that control. Um, and harness it in a way that was healthy. So I think that's when I think when I, and I go back to like how I was as a young teacher, I remember having many conversations, especially with, with young girls about 
they would tell me what's going on at home or something. And, and don't call my mom, you're just going to make it worse. And, and I said, well, let's talk about why I call your mom and how do we, you know, and, and I call your mom because you're not doing your schoolwork. So what can I do to help you? And what can you control in that situation at home? You know, so I think that has, that has really influenced just me being able to look back and my childhood has really influenced how I engage with, with young people. Um, I think about what I needed, what I needed back then. And I don't know if I would have received it, to be honest. That's the other thing. And so when I work with teenagers, I know that they're, they, I don't push at too hard because they, just because I'm trying to give them what I think they need, they don't see it yet sometimes. And so it's, you have to be persistent. You have to be consistent with them and you just continue to um, care about them and they'll, they'll come to you when they're ready. Yeah, no, you reminded me while you were talking, um, I think it had been explained to me as the trauma test, um, you know, that you're referring to. And I, I'm a 10 on that test as well. So I understand what you're, you're talking about. Um, you know, it's interesting because I teach, you know, as you know, part-time at, at um, San Barbara City College. And it's interesting. Um, and I don't know if you experienced this growing up in terms of how teachers interacted with you, but a lot of my female students you know, I teach journalism, so it's writing, you know, so it's, it's, a, it's a class where you really get to know your students because writing is such a, you know, expression of everything and how somebody experiences the world, even in, in, in nonfiction and, in, you know, in journalism, because everybody who starts wanting to be a journalist is they have this voice to tell, like they have this voice inside they want to get out and they're looking for a path. And for some people it's journalism, some people it's, you know, different kind of writing, but a lot of the female students I've had have told me that teachers over the years have told them, you know, you're not good at math. Um, you should try this instead of this. And it lives with them. It's like, it, it, like they remember that, like they were just told it today. And uh, there's, you know, a lot of, um, you know, students of color um, have been told also to you know, why don't you try, you know, this kind of class or why don't you try a trade or, and there's not, you know, Believe me, I wish I could fix, you know, cars or something. I wish I had those skills, you know, um, there's nothing wrong with that. But being sort of shifted and told from an early direction that, you know, you're not good at this and do this. Um, at community college, I try to unravel that. And I say, We're, you know, you're starting over. You're, you're here. You made it. You can be anything you want. And uh, you don't have to listen to what somebody told you. If someone told you you're not good at math, it doesn't mean your only path is to be a writer. You probably are good at math. You just have not found the teacher yet, maybe, who helps you sort of light that fire and then you can go down that path. You know, so I try to say you can be anything you want. You choose journalism, but you can also be an engineer or a scientist. You can do all of that, you know. And so it's getting them to understand that it's not them. It's usually just what they've been exposed to and how they've been exposed to. Did you get any of that growing up? Um, did you, were you sort of channeled into sort of a certain kind of style or, or career or how did your teachers give you feedback along those lines? Um, I actually, I think I always got really po positive feedback. I mean, I think, and I, and I, again, I think most of the feedback that I got from teachers was a frustration of why aren't you trying harder? They're like, we know you can do, we can no. see it in you. We know it's there. No. And, and I just, I, I almost, I'm like, 
I almost do the opposite of what people tell me to do. That's one thing I learned. I think that was also a parenting thing because my mom or my dad would tell me to do something and I would do the opposite. Mm-hmm. And that was something that I had to um, get out. I had to work that out because you can't, that's not, it's not a good way to function when you have your parent or your supervisor or someone telling you to do something, you react the opposite way. Uh, but I think as a young adult, like I, it's like, don't tell me what to do. Like, and so it was, it was sort of, um, so if a teacher said, I want you to do this assignment, I literally, and here's how you earn an A, I would, I would purposefully earn a C or a B just to sort of, I don't just, I don't know what it was self-sabotaging. Um, so, but I got, you know, and then they would get, come on, I want you to redo this. I'm like, no. And I was sort of stubborn in that way. Um, and and I didn't, I, I don't think I had any, I don't remember getting much negative uh, pressure about what you can't do. I start. I did get a lot of, um, there was a lot of comments about me in a, in, a, in a sexual manner. I remember one very clearly walking into a classroom one time and I, my schedule had just gotten changed and I had walked in and the teacher said, oh great, here comes another blonde, another blonde something and then I literally just stared at him and I turned around I walked back out and I went to my counselor I said I am never walking into that room again Mm -hmm. and so um those sorts of things stick with me more um also older like older students saying crass things to me Mm -hmm. Uh, but I always felt like I could do anything I wanted to do Mm -hmm. but don't tell me what you want me to do (laughs) let me do so I think that's sort of the the stuff that, that as I think about it, um, but I, I, you know, as an educator, I, I'm so you, you're, you're right. It's you, you have to. They, you may not, you may think they're not listening, <laughs> or that they're not, you know, they're just they, they listen to everything, and 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 it impacts them in a way that you just never know, um, and. And saying sorry or realizing what you said and being able to tell that young person, you know, I just realized what I said to you, or maybe, you know, as a reaction to something or trying to get you to mo- not trying to motivate you or something. I don't know what the reason, but acknowledging it and saying you're sorry goes a really, really long way. Yeah. And I, as a principal, say I'm sorry on a regular basis, not be- for many reasons. I mean, just because, and it's, it's, I say it to my staff, I say it to myself, I say it to my husband, you know, it just depends on what's happening. And I think that's part of what I really love. Um, at our, we've been as a district really working on restorative, restorative approaches, the social emotional learning, that's the self-awareness. So um, we, I love, I love that about our school. It's, it's just loving kids and caring about kids and making sure that they get what they need. Which includes the academic piece, of course. <laughs> yeah. uh, let me ask you about when you started at Lacumbra. What was that experience like for you, uh, growing up where you grew up, and then now you're at Lacumbra? Um, mm-hmm. Anything surprise you, or how did you sort of try to connect with those students? Um, I yeah. So it was primarily so where I grew up. I would say the demographics in South Pasadena. Um, it's it's white and it's middle middle to upper class um 
we were not. We lived literally in a rental next to the train tracks, next to an alley. I'm not exaggerating. Mm-hmm. Um, but so we grew up in it and was so it was white and um, Asian, mm. a, a whole a whole different sorts of you know Asian is such a generic term for really who was there. Um, my best friend, you know, Vietnamese, Chinese, um, Filipino. So it was so that's the where I grew up. But then living in Santa Barbara, um, we are, it's different, right? And so at La Cumbra, it was primarily um, Latino. And so for me, I found it actually really easy to connect with their, their, their children. And first and foremost, um, they, they respond to you caring about them as an individual. And so I spent a lot of time getting to know my students on an individual level, knowing what their interests are, knowing their abilities. It was hard um, when I had uh, Spanish speakers in my class that, that were only Spanish speakers, they were newcomers. That was probably the hardest part um, because I don't speak Spanish. And so us fumbling together was actually, we, I laugh at myself a lot and they would then laugh at themselves. And so that was hard. Um, luckily, the way my schedule was, I had periods, I taught my first year, I taught periods, it's when they had seven periods. So I taught periods one through five, and then I had sixth and seventh period off. And every day during sixth period, I took a nap on my desk and then woke up with the bell and seventh period, I prepped and then got ready for any meeting that I had after school. I, I met a lot with families and to talk and to get to know them as well. I think the hardest thing was I was, they looked at me because I was 22 years old. And so they looked at me, they're like, what do you know? You don't even have kids. You're a kid yourself. That's what I got mostly was comments about my age and how do you, what, and then we would work through that. (laughs) Um, But it was, I also remember being very aware of my whiteness. Um, and I remember one time in class, students were telling a story and they were talking about, one, one student in particular was talking about um, his brother's white girlfriend. And, and he was taught, and I said something like, well, you know, I'm white. And they all sort of stopped and looked at me and they're like, yeah, but you're like a different white. <laughs> and I just like start giggling. And um, so I, you know, I'm, I'm always very aware of my whiteness um, and, um, and what comes with it. And that's another thing that I um, really, you know, I don't take lightly. And, you know, I have privilege. Even though I was, you know, at being a white woman and being a white woman in a school, I do not take that lightly at all. And I do what I can to to use my privilege in a way that benefits every single child. Um, so. Mm-hmm. And did you teach somewhere after La Cumbra before you made it to Santa Barbara High? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so I was at La Cumbra for three years. Um, mm-hmm. And then that's when they had, it was six, seven, eight. It was a uh-huh. middle school. Mm-hmm. And they moved the sixth graders back to the elementary school campuses. And this one, the sixth grade teachers had an option to stay or, or go with the students. and. If a couple stayed, which then forced me, I was the last one hired. So the first one fired in quotes. I wasn't fired, but I was involuntarily transferred to Santa Barbara Junior High. And I think that that actually was an interesting time in my life because um, I was a, 
I did a lot at Lacumbra. I was the department chair for the social science um, department. I was on the leadership team. I was in charge of the family engagement team. I, I was all in and I was working my butt off there and I loved it. And then to be told, oh, guess what? We're going to involuntarily transfer you. So once I heard that, I didn't just let things happen. I went out and I reached out to principals. I reached out to the Dos Pueblos principal because that's where I did my student teaching. So I was like, I felt safe there, I guess, or comfortable. And then I reached out to Jerry Fawcett at Santa Barbara Junior High because Santa Barbara Junior High is very similar to La Cumbra. And so um, I met with both those principals. I said, listen, I'm being involuntarily transferred. Um, I hope you, if you have an opening, please consider me. Um, I, this is where, and I explained why. So I sort of took control of, of, of a situation that was out of my control as much as I could. And so um, luckily Jerry said, you know what? Uh, there is gonna be a position here. And so I was able to move to Santa Barbara Junior High um, and I, I remained there for um, so hard. I was trying to do my, my years this morning, figure it out. I was there for eight years, maybe nine. I need to look at my resume. Uh, but I was there and I, I, I did many different things. I was a social science teacher. I taught seventh and eighth grade. I taught AVID, which is advancement via individual determination. Um, and then I also stepped out of the classroom and did um, a teacher on special assignment. I was an assistant principal when one of the assistant principals went out on maternity leave. Um, I was the AVID district coordinator for elementary and secondary. Um, and so I stepped out and then I also then was supporting our um, intervention system as well as uh, professional learning for our, our teachers and working with them closely in the classroom. Mm -hmm. So I was there in many different roles. And then that's when I got, I was moved up. And then I moved up to Santa Barbara High School with John Vecchio when he went up to be the principal. Okay, great. Yeah. So um, just a couple of things I want to address before we, we go. Uh, you know, you mentioned sort of how you were, what kind of student you were, and, you know, you had maybe a little bit of self-sabotaging tendencies. And I guess it's a it's a compliment, I guess, if somebody says to you that you don't try as hard as you should or you're better than you are showing. I guess it's kind of a back kind of compliment, but they believed in you. They had some potential. Uh, um, you know, what would you say to sort of a young person? But, you know, or it, it doesn't even have to be a young person because even as adults, we don't always, you know, shake these traits that we have as children. Sometimes we, we carry them with us forever or they manifest themselves in different ways. But what would you say to somebody who maybe, uh, you know, maybe holds a little bit of anger or has a tendency to rebel for the sake of or just rebellion and um, maybe uh, kind of is their own worst enemy at times, you know, from an academic and an education perspective? What would you say to somebody based off your experience and how you were able to overcome that and you're your psychology major, you know, mm -hmm. um, how do you help somebody sort of see the other side of that, the other end of that uh, tunnel? Um, well, I think, I think for me, and I think about the times where I have, you know, I was the alternative ed principal as well. So like I've been in many different roles and working with all sorts of students across our district. Um, and when I see it, I see it happening. I, I, I develop a relationship with them. I reach out, I tell them a little bit about me, my, my life. And I come from a place of, I get what you're doing and let me help you. Um, let me help you take that. Cause it's a, it's a, that character trait of self-sabotage or being able to be stubborn or um, 
a really assertive, maybe having no filter into speaking your mind um, because you, you're like, the, so those kinds of things, there, there's two sides of the coin to that. There's a positive and a negative side and what they're doing. And I try to help them see the two sides of the coin. Or as some people, you might say, there's the, um, the balcony in the basement of a character trait, right? It's the stuff that, so it's helping them see like, okay, let's talk about why, like, man, you are so stubborn. You're just rebelling against doing that assignment. I mean, that is a lot of strength. That is a lot of strength that you have there. So let's talk about how you can use that in a way that's going to get you to where you want to go. Where do you want to go? What's your plan? And how can I help you get there? So I think for me, it was always, I, I always try to emphasize the positive aspect of that character trait. Try to see it. Try to see that asset and where it comes from and then how you just help them. It's, it's about mindset too and see it in a different light and, and take advantage of it because um, it sort of goes back. It, so that's how I, I go after it, I think, is, and maybe that's the psychology major in me as well, but is recognizing the dual nature of different personalities, traits, and, and decisions. Um, that's the other thing I always will talk to kids about. It's like every decision has a consequence. And I think sometimes people think consequences are negative. And I'm like, no, it's, it's positive or negative consequence. There's always a reaction. There's always something that comes as a result of the decision. And let's think through that. Um, and that often will come out when students will say, we're talking about like a physical altercation. And they'll say, well, Ms. Simmons, what did you want me to do? Did you want me just to stand there and not fight back? And I said, actually, I, I would never tell you, what do you think you should have done? I mean, think about the consequences. Are you okay with being, if you want, if you want to fight back, there's going to be a consequence as a result of that. There's going to be a consequence at school, but there's also a consequence in your peer group that might actually be a positive one. So we talk, I talk to them in that way of just helping them see things that maybe they're not seeing and, and then let them process it and, and, and work through it. So yeah, sometimes you what you think is your biggest weakness or disadvantage or problem. If you yep. just reset it, it becomes the, your unique trait that allows you to do anything you want and be successful. It's, but Sadly, some people never figure out how to, how to, how to twist that or it changes depending on what stage of life you're in. But um, yeah. I think that's the key is understanding a lot of the challenges that you've overcome as a child or, or a little bit later. Those are your, um, you know, things you've overcome and that made you stronger and that makes you more equipped and better prepared a lot of times to tackle the world as an adult and be more successful um, the challenge is just uh, recognizing that and overcoming it. Don't letting it, don't let it overwhelm you. Yeah. Um, just to wrap up, you know, we have a new superintendent, Hilda Maldonado. I guess she's not so, so new, you know, she's been here a few months now. Um, and sort of, you're very active, you know, you're, 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 you know, all the principals have a role, you know, a higher profile role. And you definitely are one of the more visible in terms of being outspoken and, and talking about these issues. Uh, can you talk a little bit about, where we're headed and where the where the district is headed in terms of having some new leadership and having some more awareness of some of the the uh, social emotional challenges that we've had. You know, we're looking at grading again. We're looking at ways to um, help everybody be successful in the classroom. And you know, there's lots of there's well, I shouldn't say there's lots. There's there's some critics who are very loud um, about everything that happens. 
um, you know, in the district that they don't agree with. Um, where are we headed? You know, is this a good time to be a Santa Barbara Unified um, uh, district uh, a student and, you know, parent of a student? Uh, what's, what's your outlook on where we're going? Well, for me, we're headed in the same direction we've been heading in. And it's, it's you know, making sure that every, every, I'll use our motto, every child, every chance, every day. And it's, and it's still rings true. And under um, the new leadership, it's, it's continuing. Um, and in fact, I almost feel like it's, folk, we're focusing even more, um, which is great. I mean, that's what happens. We evolve and, um, and we're headed in the same direction. And that's the direction of serving all of our students. Um, and, and the good thing around, um, our, our progress. So it's, I will say it's been, it's in, it's hard right now. And this is where my, maybe my traumatic childhood experiences is helping me because it's, it's just, it's hard because of all of the things that are happening right now. We have the pandemic, we have the, um, this changing of our president and then all like right now is watching the impeachment try, you know, it's like, there's so much stuff going on and um, just trying to remain focused on student learning is easier said than done because of the noise that's sort of coming from everything, but we are, and we're committed to that. And it, it is a good, it is a good time. It always has been a good time to be part of Santa Barbara Unified. I mean, I've been here for 22 years. And so, one of the things that I've appreciated about new leadership is, and whether it was Carrie or Hilda, is that coming in and, and asking really good questions and asking us, you know, wait, why is this happening? Or why is that happening? And then, and whenever someone asks me the why around something, it forces me to re-examine it and either refine it or explain it in a way that then they're like, oh, okay, that makes sense. And so in, that refines my communication structures, right? So for me, we're headed in the absolute right direction. We're being um, even, even with all of the noise. Um, sometimes you'll hear us, I'll use the word stand. Um, this, the sand, it's, it's that um, comes from the analogy of the, the, the glass container and you, if you put boulders in and then you, you put sand in, try to add water. It's anyways, it, it's a great thing that, you know, the sand sort of gets in the way, but you should be focusing on the big boulders, the big rocks. Mm -hmm. And we are focusing on the big rocks, although the sand seems really loud right now. Um, so I, I continue to be so proud of what we are able to do. I just, to see, to see the struggles that my students and my staff go through every day. And at the end of the day, I'm, the, I'm so proud of the work. And um, it's, it's a good time to be in Santa Barbara Unified. It always is a good time, yeah. <laughs> but it continues to be a good time for sure. Well, thank you, Elise Simmons. I really appreciate you taking time. I think this is a really great conversation and um, <laughs> Even um, you know back when I you know writing stories and reporting on you and 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 the issues of the district and, and you know it may not always be the way that the district may want to see. I always appreciated how uh, kind you were in your approach and you know wanting to sort of get to know like well where is this guy coming from you know and I think that goes to the sense of the connections that you try to make with 
the people you interact with. And it's really good not to jump to conclusions and judgments about people, you know, and just get to mm-hmm. know them. So um, yeah. um, I appreciate you taking time and talking about Santa Barbara High and everything that um, you and the district uh, is doing. So thanks a lot. Well, I am really appreciative and I feel very, um, uh, what's the word, blessed to have been chosen to be here with you this morning. Um, so I know it's just for me, it's it's just a great opportunity. And you did promise it was going to be a casual, fun conversation. And I would say um, I was worried, I'll be honest, a little bit worried just because anytime I'm in the spotlight with anything, but it you have made it really comfortable and fun. And I just appreciate you asking me to be here with you this morning. So thank you. All right. Well, thank you. My pleasure. And um, I'll see you around. Take care.